This is Dissecting Dragons, the speculative fiction podcast for writers and readers by writers and readers. Hello and welcome to Dissecting Dragons, the speculative fiction podcast for writers and readers by writers and readers. I'm Madeleine Vaughan. And I'm Jules Ironside. This week, maintaining the mood, how to avoid misusing tone in speculative fiction. Ah, tone. (laughs) That old friend. (laughs) It's kind of an elusive thing for writers, I think. I mean, it's, Mm. it's... if I was actually teaching someone who's a fresh out of the box beginner writer, I would not immediately start with tone in the same way you wouldn't immediately start with, you must find your style and your voice. Um, yeah. Because it's the sort of thing that comes once you've got a little bit of technical proficiency. So this is yeah. kind of an intermediate lesson podcast. <laughs> yeah. And I think we do kind of need a whole episode for it because it's... Again, it sounds like it's simple, but actually trying to explain what tone is requires um, a little bit of time in order to actually really understand it proficiently and to explain it properly. Um, So I'm glad that we are just doing a whole episode on it because we've we've talked about tone in the past where we've mentioned it, uh, but we haven't actually ever really gone, okay, but what is it? No, we haven't. Um, Okay, so before we get into the weeds on exactly what we mean by the word tone in terms of writing, I'm just going to give an example as to why this popped into my head today. And then hopefully you can then, as you're listening to this, refer back to the example and think, ah, that's what they mean, you know, if it's something you've never encountered before. Mm. So, um, (laughs) this one came to me because of... uh, Obviously, Madeline very generously beta reads my Harker and Blackthorn series as it's being written. And it, this podcast episode popped into my head after some feedback she gave me on book eight, mm. um, which was, you know, a perfectly legitimate thing. But I'd obviously hit a point in, I, I have to say, book eight was really, really difficult to write. <laughs> I found it really hard. I think because so many things were culminating in book eight and I was wrapping up or at least redirecting a subplot thread. Mm. Um there was a lot riding on it and sometimes you're so close to what you're writing you can't actually see exactly what's going on until somebody sort of reads it and goes yeah this is great but there's this yeah. um anyway the bit i'm talking about specifically which i'll have to be oblique but obviously madeline will not understand what i'm talking about i, I already know exactly what she you're already talking knows about. What I'm talking. <laughs> she's um she's well aware that i am talking about uh two characters who finally kind of overcome some issues between them Mm-hmm. and what they then do about it. And the problem was I was kind of half shying away from writing a sex scene <laughs> because I was thinking I'm not really writing smutty urban fantasy, or well, not intentionally. <laughs> um, but also they've got quite a sweet relationship. Um, mm. The problem is those two things were competing on the page. And after... X number, I'm not even going to tell you how many books you start thinking this for. If you're Madeline, yeah. you start thinking it after five minutes with book one for some reason. I, I can't imagine why. <laughs> I think Madeline maybe lives in my head sometimes. Um, Rent no. free. <laughs> Rent free. I'm really sorry for her if she does because my head is not a fun place to hang out. <laughs> um, but yeah, basically, 
you can absolutely, for example, have something that is your, this specific focus, this this specific relationship. You can you can obviously have something that's very sweet, mm-hmm. and it can also be steamy and and sort of sexy and intense at the same time. But you mm-hmm. can't have both those things happening on the page at the same time. So it kind of felt with that scene where I was trying to wrap that up, I was going a bit all over the place with it and I lost the tone. And, you know, it happens to everyone. This is why you need beta readers, people. Yeah, I because I remember reading it and being like, I'm not sure what I'm supposed to go with here because without going into too much detail, you know, there has been this build-up for <laughs> this this conclusion, for, for this... For this uh, I'm not even going to say, it's not actually this sex scene, but for, for this, you know, I, I don't I don't know how to describe this without giving massive spoilers, but it's basically kind of- there has been this massive build up to, towards a conclusion. Um, and what was happening was that it, having sort of built up this huge momentum um, and this kind of this, to, towards this finale, there was kind of like, it was like there was a small diversion before we were getting there. And it was almost like we'd had this massive rock rolling faster and faster down the hill. And then it sort of was stopped and kind of moved a little bit to the left and then just started to roll again towards the conclusion. I was like, no, wait, hold on a second. I'm not sure how I was supposed to feel here. <laughs> this is this is actually, it, it doesn't feel quite right. And I was it was a shame because I actually really enjoyed the little cutesy bit that you were writing i was like this is really sweet but i'm gonna need you to get rid of it jules because (laughs) i'm gonna need you to move it somewhere else and that was the thing that particular bit was in the wrong part of the book yeah and you know sometimes my books sometimes my books quite often come out in the wrong order and uh so it, it was sort of something that i'd kind of played with a little bit before and then you get sort of like oh god i've got to finish the book i've got to get this out there kind of thing mm-hmm. yeah and um i just got to the point where i'm like i don't know what i'm looking at anymore i'm just gonna go and just throw it at madeline <laughs> see what she thinks <laughs> I mean, to Jill's credit, I really did. I did love it. Um, and it wasn't actually that much of a, you know, it wouldn't have ruined it. I think that's really important to say. It, it wasn't a, a kind of, right, well, no, this is this is completely ruined for me moment. Um, but it was a small shift in tone, which removed ultimately the, the big impact of what was happening. Um, and because of that, it, it was... It was dampening what should have been an a, a, what would have been an incredibly strong conclusion, and what is a very strong conclusion. Um, and as Jules has pointed out, Jules, I'm sure that everyone at this point can realise Jules is a very seasoned writer. Um, <laughs> you don't you don't rattle out eight books in what is essentially twelve months without being an incredibly good writer. Um, that's just a fact. So, uh, well. Yeah, for the most part. But seriously, yeah, <laughs> to, to, to the quality of the of the stuff, we all know Jules is an excellent writer, um, and it just goes to show that this is not something which is just our rookie mistake. It's not. It's something which occurs to everybody at every point, which is why having a beta reader is so important. Because the other thing is that as you are writing, you can actually kind of, haha, become a bit tone deaf. Yep. 
You really can. (laughs) (laughs) Which is why you kind of need someone to go through the whole experience of the book and have a a more kind of a more natural sort of experience with the way that the tone develops and is sustained um which is why having a beta reader a clean pair of eyes as it were <laughs> clean sorry that sounds very strange but you know, <laughs> um a new set of eyes a fresh set of eyes i think is the word i was looking for really does make a difference yeah absolutely so i suppose just to wrap up this tiny little bit and I may refer to it again because it's a reasonably good example in its personal experience but Mm. it's the idea is what tone did I want for that specific chunk of the book what what tone did I want the book to end on so that Mm -hmm. you know I had three things there that I was resolving but they didn't need to be fighting each other the way they were um if and then if I'd gone with my instinct of this isn't quite right yet then um you know I would have been more in the ballpark than I landed when I finished the book um but sometimes books are difficult to write and you just want to get to the end that doesn't mean you then publish the book without ever <laughs> without ever doing anything about it you just sort of put it aside for a little while because they're books that you need to give a bit of space to breathe before you come back and you can see it yourself with fresh eyes yeah um but yeah ultimately what tone did I want well you know the relationship overall ends up being very sweet but the tone in that moment needed to be a lot more intense. And that didn't mean it couldn't be funny, but it needed to be intense first, not cutesy. Yeah. Yeah. Talking all the way around this without giving anything away. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So there we go. So the point is that it can happen to everybody. um, And... It's why it's so difficult. It, it really is difficult. Yeah. So uh, with that example in mind, uh, we're going to talk about what we mean by tone. So basically, tone is the mood of a scene or of the entire book. And you might have various different like mini tones, semitones, if you like. <laughs> semitones in your sort of like your scenes and things. But when they all come together in a book, the book itself should have an overall feel or mood mm-hmm. yeah uh, now this is going to be linked a little bit to genre but it's not exclusive but there is definitely a relationship between that um, essentially if you don't kind of actually get the tone correct, you can end up with audiences getting very angry um, with the tone of the book if it hits them wrong or even if they if they don't know what's what. That's, that, that's going to essentially annoy them, which is again why it's linked to genre, because a person will pick up a book expecting a certain tone within that book. Now you can have kind of a little bit of different flavours, it can go on a slightly different direction, but if you open a book and expect one thing, and you've bought a book expecting one thing and then it just suddenly halfway through becomes something else entirely you're gonna get some pretty dissatisfied readers absolutely if you let's take crime as an example so you pick up you're fed up of blood and guts you don't necessarily want a a strong psychological thriller element and you don't want loads of bodies everywhere or a serial killer but you do want crime. You want the kind of crime mystery, so you want a cosy crime. Maybe one person's died. You want Agatha Christie or MC Beaton, 
Um, you don't want to get halfway through the book and then discover someone has written a really gory Karen Slaughter-esque novel. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Um, you're going to get kind of upset if it's Hercule Poirot and yeah. then all of a sudden it's it's Slasherville. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so when we say, I mean, we say this a lot, we say know what you're writing and know who you're writing it for. And, you know, this is an area where that's really, really true. Mm -hmm. and there's there's no way around it and it's not that writing can't be a fun exploratory process whereby you just sort of go I've got a blank sheet of paper a blank screen I'm just going to write whatever comes into my head that's great but that's not publishing that's not writing for a reader um that that's fun for you (laughs) kind of thing or maybe you you and a close friend yeah but and sometimes that project can actually become something which you then want to publish. Don't get me wrong, that can happen. But there are steps that then need to be taken before it's ready to be released. Yes, there's the the whole editing process for a start. (laughs) Yeah. But yeah, yeah, um, writing is rewriting. And I think maybe we don't even say that enough. Um, Writing is rewriting. We should probably say that in every single episode. Writing is rewriting. Writing is mostly editing. Um, anyway. <laughs> so, um, yeah, that, so that there is, as Madeline has said, the genre element to tone as well. Um, mm-hmm. Is tone the same as tension, suspense, drama or conflict? No, not really. Um, <laughs> those elements will influence your overall tone. They're all parts of the puzzle that will make up the picture, if you like. They're all mm-hmm. like shades that go into the, the final colour. Um but a book is greater than the sum of its scenes. And as well yeah. as structure, which is how it's put together, tone, which is why it's put together, is essential in delivering the reading experience you want your target audience to have. Essentially, tone is going to be very linked in with the reason why you're writing the book. Yes, definitely. Um <laughs> And it's one of those things where I ask, I like to ask my students this and I like to, I ask myself and say, okay, but why are you writing the book? And I see in my students' eyes, they're like, I'm writing this because you're making me write this. It's an assignment. <laughs> and I was just they're like, that's not a good enough reason. I mean, I know technically it's true, but come on. <laughs> you've, got to, you've got to give me a reason why you're writing this. Why are you writing this? Um, and part of why you're writing it could just be, well, I want to write something funny. Okay, fine. I wanted to write something funny. Okay, that's gonna, that's going to be, that's going to affect the tone. Um, I wanted to write something which explored the tragedy of life. I wanted to write something entertaining. Great. Okay, all of these particular things are going to affect the tone. And this is again one of the the really important things about why tone matters and and the difference between writing with intention and just writing for a little bit of fun. I am not poo-pooing writing for fun at all because you can start writing for fun and then end up writing with intention or you can just write for fun for fun. That's absolutely fine. I am not putting that down in the least. I do it a lot, okay? Um, But it it does make a big difference having a kind of idea of what you want to do when you start. And most particularly, this also actually helps with finishing a piece as well, because it's very easy to start things. It's not always easy to finish them. 
And a big part, I think, of people struggling to sort of finish something is that they don't actually have the momentum, the desire, the intention at the beginning to keep going to the end. And tone is one of those things that really, really comes up um, and, and is a big part of that process. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, right. So how does tone go wrong? Um <laughs> I know it seems a bit counterintuitive to start with, how does it go wrong? But by showing you how it goes wrong, you'll see how you can make it go right, if yeah. you follow me. So uh, our first one is, then I go and spoil it all by saying something stupid. <laughs> well, <laughs> I, I accidentally destroyed the mood. Um, yes. So this is, you know, as the example that I, I gave from my own work earlier, uh, humour in the wrong place mistimed jokes misdirected jokes misdirected jokes are the worst um, sweetness instead of steaminess slapstick instead of gritty realistic fighting for example yeah. so all those things will completely alter the tone of a scene um, i think it's really worth looking at humor because you have a joke in the wrong place mm -hmm. and okay let's say you have a really intense scene if you're building the scene up to be intense and genuinely dramatic not melodramatic or hyperdramatic whatever um, you don't want humour to pop into that necessarily. No. Or if you do, you want it to be very subtle because something bad is probably happening. So, yeah. it, again, it depends on the sort of book you're writing. If you were writing Grim Dark with a side of humour, so, for example, Mark Lawrence's Prince of Thorns series, mm -hmm. um, then that's fine. Uh, and, you know, the, the humour in that is quite dark, but then the audience knows what they're getting into when they go in because they literally walk straight in and, and the first scene is like this um, battlefield that's covered with, with corpses and someone's sat on a throne of corpses kind of thing. So And someone's yeah. making a joke about it and it's like, okay, you know exactly what you're getting. He set out his stall really, really early on here. Yeah. And I think it's, it's worth saying, for example, the technique that one actually uses in order to disrupt tension. Um, I'm sure you've all been in that situation. I say in that situation. I'm sure you, you're all aware of, the, of of this kind of scene where there's been some sort of like terrifying music. You know, there's been this build up. There's something moving in the woods. Everyone's like, oh God, what is it? What is it? And then, and then bam, someone jumps out and it's just their like, I don't know. It's, it's their mate dressed up as, I don't know, Shrek or something stupid like that. Um, and they have a little joke about it, like, oh, were you scared? Were you scared, mate? Kind of thing. Um, and that, and that's obviously, that's used very purposefully as a technique of building up the tension and then the release, the rapid release of the tension, which actually causes a greater laugh. It's also why dark humour tends to work quite well um, and why you have tragedy and humour um, together because you have this big build-up and then you release it with comedy. But that's the really important thing. You release it with comedy, the tension. If you are trying to create a certain tone um, of sadness or suspense or something like that, you don't then add comedy because comedy is used as a release. Yeah. Unless you're adding a very particular kind of banter. But again, because laughter, laughter releases something within you, tears release something within you. Um, usually when you're kind of being highly strung and you have tension, um, 
the whole point is that you don't want that to be released and the release comes when you scream or you react you physically react but up until that point you don't know how to react yet you just know that something bad is going to happen yeah so i mean the other thing with with humor is the misdirected joke and the thing is okay uh buffy the vampire slayer great example generally does it right in the sense of yes there's lots of whip smart banter etc there's there's jokes and things at the end of fight scenes when people die etc there's never a joke when someone we're supposed to care about dies and that's the important thing a misdirected joke is when someone you know something tragic is supposed to have happened that's not the time for a joke and yet i've seen in a lot of urban fantasy someone say something at the time and it's supposed to be funny and it's really sort of cognitively dissonant for the reader because they're like are we supposed to laugh are we are we supposed to be really upset by this death and so what happens is you get neither you get no reaction whatsoever yeah and it's amazing what can happen if you get tone right as well in that if if you've actually managed to cultivate the tone well in something a character can do something which would otherwise could have otherwise been funny, which isn't funny, which is painted as totally tragic. Um, a good example of this is the se- the British series Sirens, which was based off of the uh, real-life blog of a paramedic called Blood, Sweat and Tea, which is very good. I have recommended it in the past. Um, and at the end of Sirens, um, the main character's father has died and he had a really troubled relationship with his father because his father had abandoned him and then he found out that his father had remarried had a new had a new son who he called the same name it was like he'd basically tried to do a bit of a redo and so he doesn't want to go to his father's funeral until he manages to watch a video that his father left for him um and it's a video of them when they were younger and you could see that his father really genuinely cared he basically had just kind of had a bit of a meltdown and and run off because he felt like he wasn't adequate and that doesn't forgive him but it suddenly meant that this main character really really wanted to be there for his father's funeral so they got they get into the ambulance he he rushes there but by the time he gets there it's over everyone's gone Um, And you've had this kind of this whole thing about him as a character and he's quite a snarky character. Um, There's a lot of humour within the series and a lot of very serious moments as well because they're paramedics. Um, And at the end of the scene, he gets up onto the top of the ambulance and he starts stripping off all of his clothes until he's naked and then he just lies at the top of the ambulance. Now, in any other scene, that would they would play that off as kind of humour of, oh, right, well, he's finally cracked it. You know, you could see that kind of humour being used in something like Scrubs, um, effectively. Um, but in this, because of the general tone and the build-up, it's just totally tragic. And he's yeah. got his two other paramedic friends who are on the ground, and one of them's just there like, that is very weird, what is he doing? And the other guy's like, he's grieving. Um and he's just he's basically just lost it for a little bit and he's clearly feeling totally restricted so he just takes off his clothes and just lies there um he's just had this break and that was a very successful use of tone where even you know something which could have been visually used as a gag in pretty much any other series even within the same genre is totally and utterly tragic yeah 
definitely. So um, I, th I think people sometimes underestimate the power of, you know, obviously you just talked about tragedy there, but um, underestimate the power of humour and comedy. Humour mm. and comedy is one of the most powerful weapons in your arsenal as a writer. So yes, yeah. it's great to have a few throwaway lines and things, um, but and but you've got to know when to wield that particular weapon, as Madeline's yeah. just demonstrated. Um, you can't just pepper every scene with it, and you absolutely cannot put it in just because you really, really love that line and it fits so well there. Um, yeah. Because if it alters the tone of the scene, then you're not delivering what you want to deliver. Yeah. Um, so other things. Uh, you <laughs> Breaking the willing suspension of disbelief. So, yeah. <laughs> Basically... This is <laughs> Sorry, <laughs> do you want to feel this one to start with? Well, I was just going to talk about the suspension of disbelief because um, this is the thing that everyone gets gets everybody sort of in a bit of a twist where uh, for those who don't quite know what the suspension of disbelief is, you are essentially, every time someone picks up a, up a book, you are asking them to believe that it's true. And they've got to believe that it's true to a certain extent in order to actually connect with what's happening. And that's why a lot of people get their knickers in a twist when they're like, well, that isn't believable. And you're like, well, <laughs> it's like, oh, they can't be LGBT characters. That's not believable. Um, and you turn around and go, but the elves and the flying cat are. Um, <laughs> but <laughs> but it's basically the suspension of disbelief is you've, you've cultivate a world which follows its own rules, which kind of, which is consistent um, and therefore believable because people have willingly decided to suspend their disbelief. So that's what we mean when we're talking about the suspension of disbelief. Now, tone really, really does come into this a lot. Every book, regardless of genre, is asking the reader to believe something which isn't true. If a book's tone shifts without warning, it breaks that suspension of disbelief and you will lose your audience. Yeah, definitely. Um, so... <laughs> Uh, an example of this for me is you know what I'm going to pick on Terry Goodkind a little bit in this episode I'm afraid because it's a really good example of what not to do uh, you know I'm putting my feelings aside here you know he, he died um, he had a successful career as a writer whatever I'm not speaking you love the dead this is just a case of don't do this with your writing um, but Wizard's First Rule was his first book and I think he started writing it when he was still a teenager mm -hmm. and I don't think the first half of the book changed greatly when he finally found a buyer for it, which would have been sometime in the late 80s, early 90s, possibly. Right. Um, anyway, the first half of the book reads like off-the-peg, boy-handed, sword-and-destiny fantasy. It, mm -hmm. it really does read like that. And then you get halfway through, and the main character is kidnapped by the Maud Sith. The Maud Sith are a sect of women who are basically psychologically broken as young girls and turned into lead torturers who can capture someone's magic and hold them prisoner. And then he becomes basically a bondage slave, as in literally sort of S&M bondage, non-consensual. Oh. And it's like the entire tone of that book, the book starts off with sort of like, yeah, it's got this sort of earthy, green, typical fantasy feeling. And then halfway through the book, everything's black. <laughs> it's like really really disturbingly um graphic in terms of torture and sex and stuff and it's just sort of like 
okay, somebody discovered something about themselves writing this book and then didn't bother <laughs> to go back and change the tone at the beginning. It's really peculiar. And, you know, it didn't actually stop the series being popular. But I, I, I've spoken to a lot of people who read that first book and were kind of like, either, okay, this is boring off the peg fantasy. I've seen this a hundred times before. Or... I was really enjoying this off-the-peg fantasy and then suddenly I was in a bondage dungeon and I didn't like it and I put the book down. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Um, And again, it's worth noting that those tone shifts, as demonstrated by Terry Goodkind, are not going to necessarily be the the end of your writing career. Uh, It can get through. Um, but it will cause some kind of division, really. Um, and it will actually ultimately mean that some people will put the book down. But it could also ultimately mean that some people read the book if only to get the dungeon and sex bit. Um, so... Yes, I mean, that specific example could have gone either way and obviously did. Yeah, <laughs> um, yeah you can absolutely have a, a book that does change its tone. And it seems to change its tone sort of midway through or even towards the end. But you have got to very carefully foreshadow and execute that. You can't just yeah. go, I am writing this zany space fantasy, ha ha ha. And then at the end, there's this massive, massive dystopian type war. Yeah. And <laughs> th- there are people who've actually used very sudden tonal shifts successfully where you have something which is very humorous or very light and then snap um it suddenly gets dark very 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 quickly well blackadder goes forth yeah blackadder goes forth is an excellent example but the fact of the matter is is that blackadder goes forth has had a lot of foreshadowing for this the whole time the biggest foreshadowing being that it's set during the world war (laughs) Yeah, we all know that World War One did not end happily for anyone who was involved in it. No, exactly. Um, so it so even though it was suddenly this you know this very this big shift where you just see them all die, yeah, um, and that's that. And there's this music, and it's suddenly incredibly sad, um, and it takes you by surprise. It it doesn't totally alienate the watcher in this case because we have actually had that build-up, even though we weren't conscious of the build-up, we have actually had that build-up from the very, very start because of the sheer setting. And I guess what happens is that ultimately you you spend your entire time thinking, well, you're hoping that he's going to get out of it, that he's one of his schemes is going to sort of wriggle him free, him and the others. Um, but it doesn't. It doesn't wriggle any of them free. Yeah. Um, and they all die together, and it's incredibly sad. And I think, I mean, two points on this. Um, One is that the the tone shifts in a way that makes sense. You know, it's internally consistent. So it shifts in the sense of, yes, we've taken this terrible thing and we've Mm -hmm. made you laugh and now we're going to make you think. So it makes sense to go in that direction. And the other thing is that I understand from when they were trying to create that final episode, they were really, really stuck. Because they were kind of like, well, how can we make this funny? How can we make this accessible? We don't want to bring everyone down. But at the same time, we're not being authentic, which is something we'll come to in a minute. If we yeah. just play this for laughs, we, we, we absolutely cannot do that. And then one of the guys who was sort of cutting it all together sort of slowed the footage down 
and found some music to go over it and someone else said, oh yeah, let's fade the poppies in over the top of it. And it all just yeah. sort of came together. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. It's it's one of those endings which takes you by surprise but is is so entirely fitting. I don't know a single person who complained about the ending of Blackadder. In fact, everyone I know... Ha- you know, who's watched it has always commented about how moved they were, how how much they liked it. Yeah, absolutely. And since the entire thing satirizes the the sheer insanity of World War One, um, mm-hmm. you know, the the techniques being used, <laughs> the 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 way that they, the men were led, this sort of gamification in terms of like, let's treat it like it's all just cricket. Um, which was all ridiculous. These are all things we cannot afford to forget. Um, yeah. So laughing at them in that way was very powerful as well. So yes, it, it was all internally consistent and it definitely worked. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, uh, third point, monotony. Ah, <laughs> uh, yes. <laughs> so... Books do require variation and tension. We've talked about this before, but they require variation and tension and suspense and pace. Because if everything stays the same, if you only deliver one speed or style, then no matter how fast the book is, it will plot. It's a little bit like a roller coaster, okay? Roller coasters will have moments where they slow down and speed up and things will change. You won't just be going, right, we're going very fast, but continuously in one direction. Yeah. Um, alternatively, Madeline, if you could pick your favourite thing to eat, what would it be? Oh God, no, I can't do that. Uh, uh, pick one favourite thing, one favourite meal. Uh, okay, um, ramen. Oh, okay, nice. Okay, so you're going to have <laughs> that for tea tonight, and then tomorrow morning you're going to eat it for breakfast, and then you're going to have it for lunch, and you're probably going to have it for tea again, and we're going to just keep doing this, and that's the only thing you're allowed to eat for the next two weeks. I do not want that much ramen. (laughs) (laughs) Nobody does. Nobody saying wants that much. It's the same. It's the same with monotony and tone. Um, If all you're giving someone is ramen all the time, then they're going to get bored of ramen, even if it was their most favourite thing in the world before they started eating the ramen. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. Um. (laughs) Yes. Um, yeah, so, I mean, that, that's the thing in the book. Um, my example, I suppose, is that you find... I mean, I've talked about the whole battle fatigue, action fatigue thing in science fiction fantasy before. Mm-hmm. And for me, that's ramen, okay? I mean, I'm not... Okay, or, or that's mushroom risotto. Mushroom risotto is like one of my... It's the dish of the gods, as far as I'm concerned. But if Aww. you gave me that at every meal, I'd be kind of like, no, I, I don't want it anymore. And that's how I feel. I really like a good action sequence. I love a good fight scene. Um, If you try and make me watch those constantly with no variation, I'm going to get very, very bored. And that is what happens for me when I feel that an author has overextended or put in too much action with not enough reflection. Yeah, absolutely. I I do remember when you were reading Kestrel Book 2, you were like, you might want to maybe have some bits of reflection, but uh, I'll see. <laughs> I was like, yeah, it is, it's happening quite fast, isn't it? <laughs> and the thing is, um, reading Kestrel Book 2, you do have variations in pace and tension and things. So 
it's more a case of can we slow it down just a little bit because I don't want to finish the meal this quickly you know going back to our ramen <laughs> our ramen metaphor um, I just found an egg and I'm excited <laughs> <laughs> you know let me wield my chopsticks a little longer um, whereas uh, you know some of this is personal preference but if I were to take a couple of the books in the Dresden Files changes I didn't like changes for many reasons but one of the things was almost the last two not the, the latter two thirds of the book is pretty much just constant action mm. to the point where there's so much action happening I don't have time to care about anybody not really yeah and uh okay not peace talks it's battleground I've written peace talks down here on my notes but it's actually battleground the latest one I liked that book but as as you can infer from the title almost all of it is is actually it's it's one big battle the entire book is one big battle yeah. and i you know even in the most fraught of battles there are quiet moments and there weren't enough of those um that you know you just had to follow this frenetic brightly colored pace all the way through and yeah again it gets it gets boring you know, you could have probably lost about a third of it in my opinion yeah and then I read a book recently, which was Builder's Fantasy. In my opinion, it's a literary novel. Mm -hmm. uh, I can't remember the name of the author, unfortunately. It's called The Absolute Book. And that is a book that shifts tone many times, but it doesn't seem to do it deliberately. And the pace doesn't change. It doesn't matter whether there's action happening, whether it's a reflective scene, whether um, there's demons on the page or what have you, whether it's the other character's point of view. The pace is absolutely the same all the way through that book. Hmm. And it's 800 pages long. And I got to the end of it and I was like, okay, so it could have been half as long and you could have varied the pace a lot more. And I might have some idea of what I just read because I read 800 pages and got to the end and I, I still didn't know what the author was trying to tell me. Yeah. I, 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 I. <laughs> I think it would have brought Madeline out in hives, to be honest. I don't think I would have finished it. No. <laughs> um, there's Star Trek Discovery as well. Yeah. Um, part of the problem with that is our emotional engagement should be... In, okay, if it's Star Trek, our emotional engagement should be with the huge cast of characters because it should be an ensemble piece. Um, so there's yeah. already the issue that Discovery isn't an ensemble piece. For the first two seasons, we're kind of like shoved in Michael's point of view okay mm -hmm. fine but then Michael's interaction with things doesn't vary for two seasons at yeah. all so if your character interaction and reaction and emotional engagement doesn't vary that's monotony that's just a different kind of monotony yeah absolutely and I think the other thing is that recently with a lot of sci-fi and stuff like that um there has been a big emphasis on like big battles, everything being kind of dystopian, everything being quite sad um, and horrifying. And I just continuously think about why I fell in love with the next generation um, Star Trek was because there were incredibly sad moments. People died. Um, there was horrifying moments. Captain Picard is horrifically tortured you know that there are some really really scary moments as well the Borg and things like that yeah. and, and moments where there's you know there's uncertainty and war and there are also episodes where they're you know 
putting on plays and they're doing some music and Captain Picard goes to Risa. Um, you know. <laughs> you know, and, and each, you know, there are some really scary scenes and some really emotional ones, but there's also these th- these brilliantly funny and light and inventive and silly scenes as well. Um, and I think that it's something which has been lost a little bit is that one big part of what makes the next generation so good is that tonally it's not all doom and gloom. The doom and gloom has a larger impact because for the most part it's a hopeful series. Yeah, absolutely. And it's those the fact that it gets to vary those episodes. I mean, they do it in Deep Space and they do it in all the good Star Trek. Yeah. <laughs> um, but in Deep Space Nine, for example, it, the seasons get progressively darker and bleaker because of what's happening. I mean, this is this huge inter interstellar war, basically. Yeah. Um, with a religious overtone, which is, yeah. you know, it, it's difficult subject matter and they handle it really well. And yet in the middle of it, you'll have something like Jake and Nog going um well let's cheer my dad up okay we need to do all these tasks in order to get to the point where we can get the thing we need to cheer my dad up kind of thing yeah and it's just a really really cute sort of little almost self-contained cameo episode yeah i just like that every now and again you'll just see bashir and um miles running past in various costumes because they're off to go do an adventure (laughs) game in the (laughs) So like we're back to the Alamo. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, definitely. So, you know, I, I get that there is a slight leaning towards bleakness in books, but I, mm. and that's fine. I even quite enjoy a bleak story, but in order for it, you to appreciate the bleakness of something, there must be contrasting moments of beauty as well. Yeah. So, you know, I'm, I'm thinking of some of the zombie books and things I've written. I've written? I haven't written them, sorry. (laughs) (laughs) You just dream about them every night. (laughs) (laughs) It's not always zombies, sometimes it's, you know, a natural disaster. Um, (laughs) Anyway, yeah, and thinking of things like The Reapers Are the Angels, and that's a really dark, bleak book, and yet there Mm. are moments of real warmth and funniness in it as well. Yeah. Um, and it's the same with Shauna, uh, sorry, Mira Grant's um, feed series, her newsflash series. Again, that's really gritty, quite dark, and yet there are moments which are laugh out loud funny as well. So you know, it's it's learning where to put these things. But you, tone should have tonal shift as well. I think is what we're getting at. Yeah, absolutely. Um, sorry, just a quick pause, Jules. Do you think we should make this a two-parter? Um. I think we can probably get through the rest of it, don't you? Uh, yeah, you... if you want. Yeah. Yeah, uh, I think we can probably cover the rest in about 20 minutes or so. Okay, all right. So, uh, the next thing that we want to look at is inauthenticity or insincerity. So, in writing terms, this is when you use dramatic description to essentially tell your reader what they should be feeling. Little little note there, this never works. A reader should be experiencing things along with your main character. You shouldn't have to tell them what to feel. Yeah, definitely. Um, I think this sort of thing 
can often come out of a writer being sort of inexperienced and thinking, I need to make this horrible, how do I make this horrible? And so what they do is they pile on big, terrible, vague plot points. So, for example, instead of one meaningful character dying, um, sort of 10 or 12 random people who no one's got any engagement with die. And, and the main character is horrified by this. Well, you would be. 10 or 12 people die around you, you would be horrified. Except yeah. the thing is, we don't care about them. And one person is a tragedy and a thousand people is a statistic. So in writing yeah. terms, you've got to think a bit smaller and make less mean more. Yeah, absolutely. Um, <laughs> and this is the other thing. <laughs> it doesn't always just have to be... You can make something bad without, you know, uh, just murdering everybody. <laughs> yeah, in the same way, if you need to signal this is a bad guy, he doesn't have to be a rapist. You know, yeah, it could just absolutely. be enough that he sort of regularly diverts funds from, I don't know, a charity he's part of in order to fund his lavish lifestyle and people are starving to death because they're not getting this, these charity funds. You know, that's bad enough. Yeah. Um, and you can also, you can show that in different ways. For example, um, I mean, uh, one thing that you, you often see with villains is that they'll they'll be going around pretending to be charitable people and shaking people's hands. And then the moment they're out of view, you'll see them washing their hands or wiping their hands down or things like that, sneering. Um, that's quite effective. It's a bit cliche at this point, but little things like that can just show you the general character of somebody, um, which again will provide a, a, an emotional response from your reader because remember they are seeing this too they've just seen the dual-sidedness of this person and that will make them feel antagonistic toward them yeah it's a common mistake for i was gonna say young writers i mean newbie writers <laughs> newbie writers to use a really high-handed um, description or purple prose to explain how your how the main character is feeling rather mm -hmm. than looking at what they're reacting at or reacting yeah. to rather and you know I, we've both gone through this thing where we've done it and then edited it back and then got it to a stage where it's a case of okay that actually feels authentic because we're not overstating it yeah and again it is something that everybody will do um and i'm sure you can probably find examples of it in our in both of our early writing um, little bits where we haven't quite managed to edit it down. Um, it is one of those things that just becomes a lot easier the more you write. So, um, and again, having a good beta reader does make a big difference because they will be able to tell you whether it's worked or not. Definitely. Um, if you look at Cassandra Clare's early books, uh, so the, I want to say the Mortal Instruments. I don't mean the yes. Mortal Instruments, do I? No, you do mean the Mortal Instruments. Ah, uh, right. Yeah, I reread the first one recently because I, I want to kind of get through the entire series because I've been told that they get a lot better and I want to give it another chance because some of the ideas were interesting. Mm -hmm. um, but I reread the first one and I'm like, mm, this isn't as terrible as people make out, but it's also not good either. And a lot of it yeah. is because of this, this highly coloured purple prose that doesn't really mean anything because there's no real emotional interaction attached to it. Yeah. Absolutely. And then you have Sarah J. Mass's A Court of Wings and Ruin, where you have that massive, massive battle, and people are getting butchered and butchered and butchered and butchered. She uses the word butchered a lot. Um, <laughs> and you don't care about any of those people because you don't know them. 
you're not even really in someone's point of view enough to go this is so horrific my mind can't encompass it in fact if she'd used those exact words once she would have had more impact than if she'd than, than this 20 or so pages she uses to describe what's happening I mean, I'm actually trying to remember a single named character other than the Ultron father, their father, who even died. Yeah. And I mean, like, actually died. Yeah, died and stayed dead. Did it properly. Yeah. <laughs> and there isn't. So, I mean, it. Th- this is a problem because more is not necessarily more. Quite often more is less in these t- in narrative terms. Yeah. Um, you want an emotional moment to be very focused and wounding and you know it should hurt or you should feel incredibly uplifted if that's what you're going for yeah yeah absolutely and again remember you are ultimately making sure that your reader is experiencing life with you know with the characters so don't tell them See, uh, allow them to experience things <laughs> with the characters a moment that worked for me recently was the moment in lucifer where he goes, I mean, it, it's after it looks like Chloe and Pierce are getting together, and you can just see, he doesn't do anything, he doesn't say anything, but his expression shifts very slightly. And then mm-hmm. in the next scene that he's in, he's rushing into uh, Laura's office saying, I've made a terrible mistake. And that's all you get. You don't get long, long pains of his, you know, his brokenheartedness. He's never even said that he loves her or anything. Yeah. It's just a case of, okay, with those two very small things, you kind of get the entire picture and it's so much more impactful. It does genuinely kind of hurt. Yeah, absolutely. Um, But again, also, we have had this massive build-up with Lucifer as well, so um, that doesn't also come out of the blue. So, you know, again, tone. (laughs) Being true to the tone. Okay, uh, mismatching the audience. Now, we're all familiar with the, the, the mismatch marketing whereby someone believes they're buying let's say someone believes they're buying a high fantasy and it turns out they're actually buying a smut with Faye Um, and both these things are legitimate it's just that the wrong book in the wrong hand causes many many angry feelings (laughs) you're so angry you're so bitter about it that's just it this is not me angry or bitter this is me slightly irritated imagine what I'd be like if I was genuinely really really angry (laughs) Yeah. Um, now, this is also one of the things where, <laughs> uh, where you actually end up sort of marketing changes because they marketing think, oh right, this is for this group of people, and then it's really unpopular with that group of people, and it seems to be very popular with another group of people. At yeah. which point they go, this is who it was for all along. I mean, uh, if you guys remember the first few episodes of Being Human, the the British version whereby mm. it, it's billed as kind of a, a cosy paranormal comedy, even from the title <laughs> music for the first couple of episodes. And then there's this, this sudden tonal shift with the title um, music for, I think, the third or fourth episode. And it's like, oh, right, you've realised who you're actually making this for. <laughs> it was very, very funny. Yeah. Um, I really did like that series, but I've got to say that the final series with Hal um, and you know the others uh, really worked for me because i think they'd finally settled in on what they were actually doing with that series yeah i think and i you know i feel like a big traitor saying this but actually the american version of being human kind of worked a little bit better because they build it 
and they, they sort of aimed it at the right audience from the very start because they'd learned from the British version of it. They they had learned from the British version. I do still feel like being human was a quintessentially British. Definitely. And when they did get it right, they got it right. And the the way that they did the humour was fantastic. And Aidan Turner, mm, he was very good in it. He was. He was excellent in it. Um, he was very Morally good. questionable vampire. Which is just what you want. So, just um, what you want. But anyway, the, the whole mismatching of audience is not necessarily just a marketing issue. Sometimes it can be a writer issue. So yeah. as I was talking earlier about Mark Lawrence and The Prince of Thorns and the fact that those books are quite dark and funny in tone, mm-hmm. you know that going in from the first page. So mm-hmm. if you complain about what happens after that, it's kind of on you for continuing to read the book, in my opinion. But there are other books where you go in and it seems to be one thing and you're like, oh, great, this is a cosy fantasy. And then halfway through, like two thirds of the cast are dead in really horrific, torturous ways. And it's like, that's not being true to your tone. That's betraying your reader. (laughs) That's not okay. (laughs) Oh, no. (laughs) You have caused great pain. And, you know, let me emphasise the fact that books in a series can change tones so so a series is another thing you can change tone in a series you can start off in one place and end up in another and hopefully you've foreshadowed that carefully through your series so it's not too great Mm -hmm. a shock and you know the readers who are not for this change of tone drop off as they go along yeah Um, absolutely thinking of laurel k hamilton which started off as sort of fairly gritty urban fantasy and turned into very very smutty vampire fiction (laughs) (laughs) again both those things are legitimate and she signaled it through the series so if that's what you like that's great you can also have series that grow so harry potter is a good example of this in that certainly the first few books are nothing like the last few in the way that the tone has shifted and it's actually become quite an issue with young readers today who are trying to read it because they can start when they're about eight but un- because they don't have to wait a year now for, to- for the next book, yeah. they-, they can read sort of the first three books and then it's like, okay, now we have to wait until you're a little bit older before you start with the fourth and then the fifth and the sixth. I was going to say, tell that to my five-year-old niece who is going through all of them anyway. Wow. And yeah, well, you know, she hasn't asked to stop and she's enjoying them. So at that point, you're just kind of like, okay, fine. Yep, it it makes enough. no sense to censor a child on reading, to be honest. No. But, um, um, yeah. But yeah, you're absolutely right. There is a distinct tonal shift when you get onto book four. And yeah. I think some of that tonal shift was allowed because the publishers suddenly realised how many adults were reading those books. But also I think they realised that their, their first cohort, you know, th- their readers were also growing up. Yeah. And then it didn't make sense to keep the, sh- the the tone the same because the characters were growing up. And this has actually been one of the issues with Artemis Fowl, actually, the series Artemis Fowl. Yeah. Is that Artemis Fowl has not grown up with its readers. Now, that's been a deliberate choice. It's basically still aimed for the readers that were. But that means that the original readers can't really enjoy the series in the same way because it's it's not grown up with them there's been no shift it's actually very much still on the same level and in fact i would even say it's some in some ways it's gone younger yeah i think i've only ever read one artemis fowl book this is the problem for me with mid-grade is that if i haven't gone out of my way to pick it up if it's recent mid-grade then i've probably missed it unfortunately because it came out after i was a child so yeah that's fair uh, enough <laughs> but yeah no i i completely agree 
and it is very difficult if you're writing a long series for children mm. and you know some some books are suitable to not grow up I mean I'm thinking of the Daisy Meadows they're not really a series it's just kind of like they're all about fairies and they're for this age group and eventually the kids will grow out of them and the next lot will come along kind of thing yeah um, and but then you can also have you know some middle grade series which don't grow up because actually they're still very relatable as a middle grade series. Now I do feel that Harry Potter went from middle grade into kind of it was crossover and then it went into young adult, frankly. Yeah. Um, which it would have been hard to do when you have characters who are eighteen. You know, not for it to still be middle grade that would have been very difficult. Um, so I think you can have sort of crossover things. Um, and that can still work. There are still books that you know that are meant for young people who who you can continue to read, but it it will it will vary on obviously with what you're writing. Definitely, um, you can also be writing a book and discover halfway through that the tone has shifted, and that is the book you actually should be writing. Yes, you can discover your book halfway through. <laughs> it's it's absolutely fine to change tone halfway through a book that you are writing. And then, yes. as long as you go back to the beginning so to make the tone match, <laughs> um, that, that's fine. Because sometimes you don't... I mean, you might th start off thinking, I just want to write something that's really funny. And, mm -hmm. you know, you've got the funny urban fantasy series. And then you realise that actually you're tackling some quite gritty stuff. So while it's going to be funny, there's going to be a lot more darkness in it. Yeah. As well. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, so let's actually talk a little bit about the uglier side of tone. Yeah, see, this is an interesting one, and we're not going to like really get into the weeds on this because this is just a food for thought exercise. But mm -hmm. think of conversation. So, ninety percent of what you of what you say is not communicated by your words. So, we're talking about body language, posture, uh, mm -hmm. the tone of your voice. <laughs> Uh, even word choice, which is not quite the same as what you actually say. Uh, yeah. A book, in essence, is a conversation with someone you'll probably never meet. So it's a conversation on the writer's side, it's a conversation mm -hmm. on the reader's side. And yeah. a good proportion of what you are saying is not being communicated by what you write, but by how you write it. Um, I know that's mind blowing, but yeah, here I was we are. Say, this is, we're getting pretty trippy now. <laughs> <laughs> but basically, by tone. So your tone, you know, if you, you don't have a clear idea of what sort of book you're writing and what your tone is saying, then you will mm -hmm. communicate things you do not intend to communicate. <laughs> yes. Now, this can mean that even with all of the best intentions, you might, you know, put in, you know, you might have prejudices coming through. You might have you know, this is where people come forward and they say this is racist, this is bigoted, this is, you know, intentionally meant to be a metaphor about this. And that might have been the furthest thing from your mind. You might not have even realised that. But the tone has communicated somewhere along the lines what you're saying. And that is dangerous. It's dangerous for your career. But it's also dangerous because it can mean that people can misunderstand who you are and can misunderstand your work. Definitely. And, you know, most of us don't want to write something that or send something out there that's actively going to be harmful, at least not without very good reason. No. Um, we all put things in our writing which we're not consciously aware of. Yes. And, you know, that that's perfectly normal. Your worldview, your 
your umwelt, if you like, your 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 selfish sort of locked in mentality um, of how you experience life. That's all perfectly normal, and it will come out in your writing. Um, however, if you're someone who does not regularly question themselves and challenge their view, you know, don't basically don't be someone who sits in a little echo chamber on the internet with people mm. who only reflect back your own opinions to you. I'm not saying go out there and get really, really stressed and argue with people who disagree with you or hold values that aren't your own, but don't shut yourself off from them. It's perfectly possible to hold a one opinion and also look at someone else's opinion that's completely contrary to yours without embracing it. And you should is, absolutely do that. It is also possible to change opinions. Yes. There have been things that Jules and I have spoken about over the years, which are now recording Dissecting Dragons. And I know, and I'm sure this is the case with Jules, that over time, opinions have possibly changed about some of those things as information comes in, as we've been challenged, you know, things like that. So right now there are going to be episodes where people are like, oh, but you said that then. Yeah, people change. Yeah, we you said can that change. Five... Yeah, <laughs> you can... <laughs> we said that five years ago. It's like the whole, you know, what a mild example of this. And, you know, Madeline and I are pretty good of, you know, we used to hold this opinion and now we think that actually we might be wrong. Um, yeah. and just coming out and saying that but for example yeah. my thing with sex scenes as in they should only be there to further the plot and now I'm like if you want to write sexy times that's fine kind of thing but try not to yeah. do it in a way that distracts from the plot yeah absolutely so you know you can be wrong and it's okay to be wrong that is just a natural thing um, and so keeping your ears open for information reading and continuing to do stuff even if you don't necessarily agree with it is a really really good way of going forward there's always going to be somebody who disagrees with you um but again this is why the tone of your book is really really important because and and you need to be aware of what that tone communicates or how that tone could communicate certain things um because Definitely. it does make a big difference I mean, I'm going to take a couple examples of fantasy from, I think, the late, well, early 90s, early 90s, definitely. Um, so, for example, I'm going to say Terry Goodkind again, I'm afraid. Um, Just let him be, Charles. No, Jesus. I mean, if I say his name enough times, maybe it'll summon him and I can, you know, just have it out with him once and for all. I don't know. I just love that I say let him be and there's just this, no. Um... <laughs> no, I can't. I shall not. <laughs> It's not over until I say it's over. <laughs> Look, it's perfectly okay if you love the Sword of Truth series. There's nothing wrong with that. There mm. are things that I've seen about the Sword of Truth series, having read almost all of it, that I cannot unsee and I cannot make peace with and I do not want to see repeated in the same sort of style epic fantasy. Mm. Um, I'm talking, you know, there's obviously racism and things in there as well, but one of the big things for me is the way that the women are treated. Yeah. As the books go on, it gets progressively worse. As in, someone will get raped. Probably several someones will get raped in every single book. And it will be kind of their fault for being in the wrong place at the wrong time. Or, or you know, not adhering to their man kind of thing. And then after that, there's something a bit tainted about them. So it's this constant low-level misogyny in the books that really, really bothers me. And I don't actually want to see that repeated in, in fantasy because I think we're better than that. And I think the problem is you can start a series in the early 90s and then you can keep following it all the way through to, you know, where are we now? 2021? Mm -hmm. And what was kind of 
semi-acceptable in the early 90s is absolutely not acceptable at all now. Sort of yeah. 20, 30 years later, whatever. Yeah, unfortunately, there are books which might not age well. Um, yeah. That's inevitable. That is inevitable. But, I mean, up until he died recently, he was still churning out books with those same themes and things in them. So this is someone who did not challenge his own worldview, who did not seek out other opinions. I mean, there's a load of really dicey political stuff in there as well. Mm. He basically did not try and expand everything. He was so certain he was right that he kept churning out the same ideas. Yeah. That's that's very sad, if you think about it. Yeah, because things will change. There will be there will be a time, Jules, when when people <laughs> will look back and will just will be the old fashioned ones. I mean, Absolutely. I don't know. I think I'm I'm still I think I'm already a little bit old fashioned in some ways. Um, <laughs> but you know, time will change, and you, and you might kind of lose lose grips with it. I think that that's that's a positive thing because you want times to change. You want things to continue moving forward. It means that we're no longer we're not stagnating. Um, but this isn't just the case with writers who are older. Uh, you know, we see this see this in young writers now. I feel really bad because I feel like all we do recently <laughs> has been to step on Sarah J Mass. And again, I really want to put it forward that I still like her books. Um, I refuse to read anything other than the Court of Thorns and Roses series though because I'm terrified of being betrayed. But I still I've still enjoyed the Court of Thorns and Roses books and I'm still reading them. Um, that being said, the books are actually quite misogynistic yeah they really um, are and it's like it's and, almost a continuation of this terry goodkind type thing where you know someone will get raped and they're, they're shut away kind of thing yeah and the thing is that you don't think it you might not realize it first of all because like what are you talking about it's full of really empowered women um except it, it isn't really there's the fact that that ultimately the the women's role you have these female warriors right <laughs> But their role within the stories are still ultimately to be baby makers at the end of the day, um, to be victims at the end of the day. Um, the the way that women react to sexual assault or assault of any kind is very different to the way that men get to deal with it. For example, you have this whole kind of this library, you know, of abused women in um, in in the series um and but there's never you never see any sympathy really for lucian or even resand beyond w what you know has happened with his mate that it's kind of all put to the okay but he's fine if that, as it were he, he's not in the second book and that that's why i liked the second book and then it kind of sort of disappeared um so <laughs> putting that to the side as well you also have the fact that and this is the bit that always got me was that you'd have this battle and you have morrigan who's meant to be based on the and excuse me for swearing but the fucking morrigan yeah you know from celtic mythology and she and Feyre are stood on the side of the battle just watching. <laughs> it's like, yeah, I don't think so. And that's the time for a heart-to-heart -heart moment for a bit of wedged-in diversity. And it's just like, I'd rather you hadn't put that in there. Yeah, to be honest, it would have made a hell of a lot more sense if Spymaster, the Spymaster, was the one who wasn't engaging in actual combat. Yeah. Yeah, the spymaster and assassin, and apparently head torturer. Yeah, 
Um, and and then there's also the fact that w- what are the female roles? They have these great powers. You very rarely see them using them, apart from Feyre. Feyre's allowed to. Um, but they, they keep talking about Morrigan's amazing powers. What are her amazing powers? We've never seen them, really. We've never seen her do whatever she does. We, we never really get to see Nesta do whatever she does. Um, even Nesta having to give away her powers. Um, now, Jules sort of doesn't mind the whole having to sacrifice powers thing. I do. I really hate it. No, no, no. no. Be- that's, not, that's not true. I don't mind in certain instances where okay. it's been properly built up properly and part of character up. development. But yeah, so ultimately, it, there's just this, this misogynistic thing, which is also that the power, all of the power that these these female characters have you know, be that politically, be that actual physical power with Feyre and stuff like that, um, has come from the male characters basically allowing them to have it. Yeah. None of them have really fought for it. And in the one case where they did fight for it, it wasn't worth it. Feyre fighting to save Tamlin ended in sadness because Tamlin wasn't worth her fighting for and she broke herself because of it and she needed a man to pick her up, essentially. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Um, so, and you know, the, the overall tone there is that you're not complete as a person if you don't have the love of your life, a male love of your life as well, yeah. which is a real problem when these books are billed as being very feminist fantasy. Yeah. There are there are some good things again. I know Jules really doesn't like them anymore, but there are some good things within the series, and I still do love the first and the second book a lot. So when this is not all, but I'm saying that there is some internalized stuff there which is coming through, which has ruined it a little bit for me. Yeah, um, well, obviously it's ruined it for me, but um, it's it's not quite true to say I don't. I still kind of like the first two books. I'm terrified to go back and reread them in case I rediscovered them with this shatterglass effect and realised that actually they're a lot worse than I remembered. Mm. Um, and, you know, Sarah Day Mass comes up with the engaging characters and interesting ideas and then generally sort of... I, I think she would do better if she just said, I want to write smutty romantic fantasy and build it as yeah. that and went in that direction, that'd be fine. Which is essentially what the next series has been. Yeah. Anyway, uh, let's put Sarah J. Mass to the side. Yeah. Um, the only other example I would use, just so that I'm not just picking on Terry Goodkind, um, is is Kirsten Britton and her Green Rider series, which you know I enjoyed the first couple of books, and then after that, you can see that she's really the the thing that kept readers coming back was this this doomed romance between the king and you know. Uh, the main character the female green mm. rider and then when uh, there's an awful lot of imported sexism into it you know which was you know that that's a 90s fantasy thing when you were a female writer because you was you were genuinely writing not like the other girls because you were in a system which was a lot more sexist than it is now believe it or not and mm-hmm. therefore you were you know, it was coming out and what you were writing. That's understandable. But, I mean, she's still writing this series. It's still in there. And she is very, very antagonistic and hostile to the idea of the fact that she is a female writer 
and her fantasy is not being taken as seriously as say Tolkien for example which is you know where she's been who she's been inspired by mm -hmm. and people are focusing on this romantic aspect and it's like well that's really unfortunate Kirsten but unfortunately the thing is the people your your fans found that aspect compelling not the rest of it so all, all your lovely prose and everything all all your high ideas and things the fact that you're trying to do a basically a Terry Goodkind and, and write fiction which crosses the bounds of genre and time doesn't matter because the bit everyone wants is that bit so yeah yeah um <laughs> it's it's worth saying that through all of this um this doesn't mean that you write to please everyone who's ever criticised your work. No. That's really important to remember. You should tell the story that you want to tell. But if your story is sexist or racist or homophobic, then you you should address that. You know, why is the story written in that way? What are you adding to the world? Um, is it possible that you're being lazy? Is your current irritation with, I don't know, the social justice warrior outspeak du jour filtering in and tinting the tone of your book in a way that you didn't intend? Um, and this is a way where <laughs> sometimes actually in trying to keep open-minded about everything that's happening around you, you can actually, your work can become oversaturated with other people's ideas. Yeah, definitely. It, it's partly why not sitting in an echo chamber is really important. Mm -hmm. And occasionally, very occasionally, and in small doses, allowing yourself to get irritated by something someone says that you really don't agree with, not engaging with it, but just examining their point of view is really mm -hmm. important. Yeah, um, absolutely. But, I mean, books absolutely do challenge the status quo. They do challenge social issues when you do it it should be done intentionally and with thought you don't necessarily want it creeping into your your fun funny humorous urban fantasy series that might not be the place for it yeah um ultimately it's also not up to you to address every single thing ever no absolutely not because if you try to do that you're gonna again you're gonna run into some difficulties <laughs> there yeah you're gonna break yourself y you are address what you want to address even if that is something small even if, if that's something which has been well trodden it's your story write what you want to write and you might think well I don't know who the intended audience is Let's just say I'm writing for me great you are the intended audience and people like you are the intended audience what you want to identify then is what kind of audience are you as a person yeah yeah definitely Okay, final point, the advantage of tone, um, or really I should say the advantage of mastering tone. Um, if you can master tone, then your style, your voice will flourish. And yes. the readers who love your style and your voice will will flock to you, or at least to your books. <laughs> yeah, there are people, you know, and I'm sure that this is the case with some of you, where if an author releases a book, you buy it. You you don't even necessarily know what the book is about yet or, or anything like that. You just know that you love this author's work and so you buy it. Yeah. Um, and, and that tends to be people who have really mastered the style and because of that have mastered, have mastered tone. Definitely. Um, 
Also, another advantage, you can say a lot more in shades of meaning and deliver a whole overarching message with far fewer words. So, like the Lucifer example I gave earlier, yes, it had been thoroughly foreshadowed, as Madeline had said, but the payoff was amazing and it mm. was tonally consistent. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and at the end of the day, being concise is going to be one, is always going to be one of those chef's kiss moments for me. Yes. Um, because if it's done properly, oh man, the impact, the impact. Aren't you just sat there going, you clever little fucker kind of yeah. thing. <laughs> one line, oh. you summed it up in one line. <laughs> yes, one line and just that's it. That's And that's always the line people remember as well. Yeah. Um, so yeah, that that's going to be, that's very important. Uh, finally, I'm going to sound like such a nerd, but tone can be fun. <laughs> tone can totally be fun. <laughs> it's like learning to mix your watercolours correctly. You know, you know, you can tint what the reader ultimately sees. And I don't know, I just like that. I think it's, I, I again, I'm such a nerd when it comes to this, but I just get super excited. It's like, with just that little bit, there's that little thing. They might not even be conscious of it, but it's wriggling in the background. <laughs> See, in every author, there exists a latent puppet master who just wants to pull the reader's strings. <laughs> and I know that sounds really sinister, but, you know, when the reader has agreed by picking up the book in the first place, it's really just a pleasurable <laughs> experience for everybody involved if it's done properly. <laughs> there is nothing quite as satisfying for me because one thing that I use to really help with tone is I love using foreshadowing particularly in the Hamashia cycle anyone who's read the Hamashia cycle and goes back to book one will see the ludicrous amounts of foreshadowing which is in there and I cannot tell you how much satisfaction has been I've gained by having people rereading the series and just texting me furiously my my editor, when she went back to having finished editing book two, went back to read book one. Um, and there were so many angry messages, so many, oh my God, it was in, it was on page, etc. How could you, what the, <laughs> just the absolute fury. And it, it did give me like an extreme amount of pleasure. It's something I've really enjoyed with Harker and Blackthorn is just putting in tiny, tiny little clues that I know are going to be useful <laughs> later. Yeah. And when, uh, because I live a little bit in Jules's head, Jules puts in <laughs> one tiny clue, sends me a snippet before she's even given me book one, and I'm like, oh, that. And she's like, wait, what? I was like, no. How did you? <laughs> no. In fact, I think what I actually said was, no, what are you talking about? I think it's more like this. And you're like, hmm, well, I'm not sure. I smell potential. <laughs> <laughs> you can't fool Madeline's literary nose if that's not a weird image. <laughs> I was like, nope. It, it was, Jules was like, oh, look at this, these two friends. And I'm like, I ship it. And she's like, no, what? No, that's not what the, I ship it. <laughs> Anyway, <laughs> um, thus we have reached the end of our episode. Yeah, hopefully you've got a bit more idea of what we mean when we, we talk about tone and how you can bring it to your own writing. 
Mm-hmm. We'd love to hear from you guys. What do you think about this? Are you still confused? Do you get it? Have you got any examples of books where tone has been used really, really well? Or examples where suddenly you've realised the reason you didn't like that book was because the tone wasn't great? Let us know. We'd love to hear from you. Remember, you can get in touch with us via our Facebook, our Twitter or our Tumblr, both individually or through the Dissecting Dragons pages. Before we go, though, it is time for our Dissecting Dragons recommendation of the week. And Jules, I believe that you've got one for us. I have. Um, you do need Disney Plus for this, I'm afraid. And I, I feel a bit loath to sort of recommend things that are on Disney Plus because I know not everybody has it. But mm. this is so good that it's almost worth buying a month of Disney Plus just so you can watch it. Mm-hmm. And that is WandaVision. Uh, as in Wanda Vision, so it is part of the Marvel Cinematic Universe, and mm-hmm. you're looking at Wanda, who is Scarlet Witch, and Vision, who, as you know, if you watched Avengers Endgame, died rather tragically. And yeah. but I don't want to give too much away. In fact, it would be quite difficult to give something away with here because it is so strange to start with. You've kind of got to go in and just be willing to to take the ride. But it is one of the most effective tonal shifts I've ever seen in a series. Because you it starts off almost classic sitcom. And there's good reason for that. Mm-hmm. And then as you go through, gradually it shifts more back into the, the sort of action, adventure, superhero type genre. Yeah, it's very very clever. It's really diversely cast. There's, you know, there's as many female characters cast as male characters, which is still something that it is quite unusual in these sort of shows. And yeah, it's it's an amazing look at with so many layers and and so much nuance over things like you know grieving and mental health and uh, and and power in its own right and who deserves it yeah so i i do highly recommend that thank you for that one um you'll have to (laughs) have to explore it a little bit more myself um and on that note guys we will say thanks very much for listening and we'll catch you guys next week yeah thanks and goodbye bye You've been listening to Dissecting Dragons, the speculative fiction podcast. You can follow our podcast at podbean.com or from iTunes. For more information, visit our Facebook page at www.facebook.com forward slash dissectingreaders or check out our author websites at jaironside.com and madelinevaughan.com. Please note that no dragons were harmed during the making of this podcast.